Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. The Word of God for our consideration this morning comes to us from Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. They went into a house. A crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat a meal. When his own people heard this, they went out to take control of him because they were saying, He is out of his mind. The experts in the law who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus called them together and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. On the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house to steal his possessions unless he ties up the strong man first. Then he can plunder his house. Amen, I tell you, everything will be forgiven people. Their sins and whatever blasphemies they may speak. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus said this because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. While they were standing outside, they sent word to Jesus calling for him. A crowd was sitting around him. They began to tell him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. He replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? He looked at those who sat around him in a circle and he said, Look, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother and sister and brother and sister and mother. This is the gospel of our Lord. We pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who has conquered the devil for us. There are many different doctrines, truths in Scripture that even Christians are somewhat uncomfortable with. That even Christians don't really like talking about or confronting or discussing. One of them might be the fact that a so-called loving God once wiped out all of humanity except for eight people in a mighty flood. And this same supposedly loving God also commanded His people to march into the promised land and wipe out entire cities, entire peoples, men, women, and children. And Christians sometimes have a hard time reconciling how a loving God could do that. There are others who have a difficult time confessing that water baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit really does save and really can save even infants. There are others who, who are very reluctant and, and deny that, that this bread and this wine are actually Jesus' body and His blood. And today's text adds two more to that list of things that even Christians might be a little uncomfortable confessing. One, the, the devil is real. The devil is a real force in this world. He is really evil and he really wants to destroy you. And second would be, which is, I don't know, somewhat fitting for Father's Day, that faith matters more than family. So you put some of those difficult issues together and it's, it's hard not to come to the same conclusion that Jesus' family and his enemies did, right? That Christianity 
is crazy. Now, as we read those verses, at first glance, you might think there are three different groups here. And, and it might appear that way, but really there are only two groups. As we stated in Revelation, there are really only two kinds of people in this world. But the first two groups take the spotlight at the beginning of the text. Jesus' family thinks he's lost it. He's out of his mind. He's a few bricks short of a load. The elevator's not going all the way to the top. Why do they think that? He seems so obsessed to them with preaching what's called the gospel of the kingdom of God, going around and healing people, casting out demons, gathering disciples, surrounding himself with really the scum of the earth, with lepers and tax collectors and people who have all kinds of diseases and and mental illnesses. He's doing so much of that that he doesn't even have time to eat. You can kind of understand why his family, loving him, caring for him, would come perhaps with straitjacket in hand and try to take him into protective custody. The experts in the law who had come from Jerusalem, they were witnessing the same types of things in Jesus' life, but they came to a different conclusion. They came to the conclusion that Jesus is really on the side of the devil, that he is casting out demons by the power of the king of demons himself. Why were they treating Jesus like that? Well, you've probably experienced it in your own life. It's, it's hard to sometimes differentiate between brilliance and madness. Brilliance and someone who's crazy. Some of the, the most famous artists, composers, inventors, philosophers throughout history, which, which history has judged to be brilliant, were often thought to be absolutely nuts by their own contemporaries. Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Vincent van Gogh, Albert Einstein, Nikola Tesla, even, even more recently, Steve Jobs. All of them were judged by their contemporary society as, as having a screw loose to some extent or another. It's, it's hard to differentiate between craziness and brilliance sometimes for us. And let's be honest, as a Christian church, the church doesn't have the best reputation in dealing with people who appear to be weird or crazy in our world. We don't exactly throw our our doors open to the people that the world has judged to be insane or crazy. We allow that stigma that the world has that, that there are nice, normal people whose greatest concerns are how new their car is and how green their grass is and how fashionable their wardrobe is. And then you have these crazy people. And, and you know, maybe what's best to do with them is, is either tranquilize them so they're numb and they're harmless or, or pack them away in an institution somewhere. We don't have a real good reputation as a church of dealing with people who are either demon-possessed or, or suffering from mental illness. I think we're missing something if we think that There's no place in the church for those who seem crazy. And it's that thing that I mentioned in the introduction, that the devil is very real, he is very powerful, and he really wants to destroy human lives, especially the lives of believers. He wants to disrupt us. He wants to lead us against God. And it makes me wonder, at least, How many of the things, the conditions that we classify as mental illnesses are actually 
attacks of the devil and his demons. How many of the things that we consider most often purely from a psychological standpoint, a medical standpoint, are actually, should actually be dealt with in a spiritual manner? I'm not talking about you know, how the movies depict demon possession. I'm not talking about somebody floating off their bed because they're, they're possessed by a demon or howling out loud in Latin, the Latin language or, or having superhuman strength. I'm talking about the, the normal mental illnesses, that, especially the ones that seem to be sweeping all across our country. Depression and anxiety and PTSD and addictions running rampant throughout our world. Maybe running rampant among us right here. Why are we so quick to, to, to deal with them purely from a medical standpoint? thinking that we can solve them and fix them with, with medicines or with therapy. Why don't we see a place for the church in helping people who are suffering from those things? Shouldn't we really treat them that way? I mean, the, the devil's goal is to destroy your mind and destroy your life and destroy your salvation. In the end, everything that's evil is including mental illness, comes from the devil himself. It's all rooted back there in Genesis chapter 3. We shouldn't stigmatize people who are suffering from any of those or any other mental illness. Instead, we should welcome with open arms because we have the solution, right? Jesus didn't stigmatize those people. He welcomed them. He surrounded himself with them. Why do we... Why, do, why are we so quick to go with, with the clinical angle rather than the spiritual? I think there are two reasons, really. If, if we can deal with it with medicine that we take or, or going to therapy, I think we, we feel we still have a measure of control. That whatever this evil is happening in our heads, we can control it if we just do the right things. The, the other thing is that it's scary to admit that there is a personal evil out there in our world that we can't control, that is more powerful than we will ever be. It's scary to think that the devil is real and he really is after our souls. But did you notice Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about the devil? And he wasn't afraid to confront the devil either. He cast out the devil's demons left and right, and it was actually those healings, those cleansing of those demon-possessed that caught the attention of these experts in the law from Jerusalem. They knew what, what they had, what was at stake with this guy. You see, if you admitted that Jesus' miracles were actually signs from God, well, then it followed you had to accept what he said and what he preached as the very words of God as well. And that threw a whole wrench into the, the religious system of, of the teachers, the experts in the law. Jesus came preaching all sorts of wacky things. Like he had come and he had brought the kingdom of God here on earth. Like he was actually the Son of God in human flesh. Like he was actually the, the long-promised Christ who had come to save people from sin, death, and the devil. Crazy stuff that he was, he was spouting off. Crazy things that he was preaching. So the, the question of that day, and the question really of every day, has to be, who is Jesus? Is he a stark, raving lunatic like his family thought? 
Is he in league with the devil like those experts in the law thought? Or is he telling the truth? Is he really who he claimed to be, the Son of God in human flesh and the Savior of the world? We don't typically, I don't think, we typically think of our faith in these terms, but that is the central question. Everything we teach and believe hangs on who is Jesus. Everything we have in this life and our our whole hope for eternal life hangs on whether Jesus is who He says He is or not. Everything hangs on that question. And the experts in the law didn't want to deal with that question. They didn't want to accept it because He blew up their religious system. This wasn't how the Christ was supposed to make His appearance on earth. The Christ was supposed to be a powerful leader. Someone who would gather powerful and rich and and beautiful people around Himself. Instead, here's Jesus. He's from the wrong side of the tracks. He's from Nazareth. That's strike one against Him. He's he's homeless. That doesn't help matters. And He's hanging around with a riffraff of society. None of this spoke to them that this was the Christ. It was supposed to be just the opposite. And so I, I guess, in some sense, you can understand why they would accuse him of being demon-possessed. Surrounding himself with people who are possessed by demons, with the mentally ill, with the, the physically ill, lepers, those who have various diseases. I don't think if, if Jesus showed up and he was hanging out in the insane asylums and the mental health wards of, of our world today, I don't think that we would look at him either and say, that, that guy is from God. I think we might call him crazy too. But Jesus does blame them. And he goes right after them. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against against himself is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. On the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house to steal his possessions unless he ties up the strong man first. Then he can plunder his house. So you see the two things Jesus is doing here? First, he's pointing out the absolute insanity of their argument. A house divided against itself cannot stand. You know, that, that's, that's kind of a, a picture of someone who has multiple personality syndrome. That they are crazy because inside their own head they're at war with themselves. Or to use a different picture, if the general of an army starts shooting his own soldiers, that army is doomed. So that's the first point he's making, that it's it's an insane argument to say that Satan would drive out Satan. But then he goes on to spell out in very vivid terms what his actual mission and ministry in this world are. The devil is the strong man who, after the fall into sin, claimed ownership of the world and all the people in it. Jesus is the stronger man who came right into the devil's house, bound him up, and robbed him of his prized possession And you know what his prized possession was? You and me. Jesus came right into the devil's backyard and he won possession of us again by dying on the cross. And isn't that the part that's really the most insane, the most crazy? He won by dying? We don't think of death as winning anything. We think of death as losing, as defeat. You know, over the course of the past year and a half. Every newspaper, every website, every, every television news station had the, the numbers, right? The numbers of COVID deaths. And it was judged by everyone to be 
just a policy and a medical and a science failure that so many people were dying, as if people haven't been dying as long as the world has been around. But Jesus turns death into victory. He, he takes death out of the hands of the devil and puts it in his own hands, and by his death, he destroyed the devil. He put the devil to death so that now we are free. So that now we will live forever. And I, I know that still sounds a little crazy. But here's the proof. The proof that Jesus won by dying is Easter. You see, if, and C.S. Lewis made this point, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he probably was either an absolute raving lunatic or he was on the devil's side. But if Jesus rose from the dead as the empty tomb, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and Peter, and 2,000 years of Christians testify, then you've got to take what he says very seriously, including what he said here. Those of us who have felt the attacks of Satan in our lives and feel so powerless need to hear what Jesus is telling us here. He's telling us that he has stormed into the devil's house. He's handcuffed him so that he can't get us. He has, he has liberated us from his enslavement. He has set us free in the kingdom of God. And he has given us the hope of eternal life. That is what Jesus is saying right here. The amazing comfort that he came into the devil's own backyard and defeated him at his own game so that we could be free. And if that weren't crazy enough, Jesus has two other crazy things for us to ponder. He says, Amen, I tell you, everything will be forgiven people, their sins and whatever blasphemies they may speak. That's insane, right? Every sin will be forgiven? What's the worst sin you can think of in our world? Genocide, rape, pedophilia, abortion? Jesus paid for them, every one. Or just think of the wicked, insanely wicked things you've done in your own life. Paid for by the blood of the Lamb. Fathers, it's Father's Day. What sins do we have to confess today? Maybe it's taking our wives for granted and treating them like they're our servants rather than our beloved spouses. Or maybe it's thinking of our, of our children as as burdens to be endured rather than blessings to be cherished. Whatever your sin as a father is, you fathers, Jesus paid for it by his death on the cross. It's gone. Insane, right? But actually, that doesn't match the insanity of what Jesus says next. He says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. You know, why aren't people flocking to hear that message? Just that little paragraph I just spoke. Why aren't people flocking in here, racing in here to hear that all of their sins have been forgiven, that they've been set free from the devil and their own sins? Jesus says it's, it's because of the sin against the Holy Spirit. I know that's a big, scary-sounding phrase. What is the sin against the Holy Spirit? It's, it's basically hardening your heart against the gospel. What is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to convert us and to forgive us? He uses the Word. And if you, in your mind, say that the Word is not saving but is evil, if it's from the devil like they were accusing Jesus of being, you're hardening your heart against the Holy Spirit. 
it, it, it's, like, it's like having a treasure buried in your backyard and you, you just absolutely refuse to dig it up. It's like having the winning lottery, in, uh, lottery ticket in your hand and refusing to go cash it in. It's, it's having the truth of the gospel, having forgiveness, knowing that it's available to you, but rejecting it outright. Here's the way I think of it. The only unforgivable sin is the refusal to be forgiven. The only unforgivable sin is the refusal to be forgiven, to not come to Jesus and lay your sins on him. That's the other side of insanity. That's the insanity of unbelief. That's why we're not bursting at the seams here because there are a whole lot of insane people who either don't want or think they can have the forgiveness that Jesus provided. And that kind of is illustrated in the the last five verses of our text. I said it appears that there are three groups, but there are really, really only two. It's because Jesus' family and those experts in the law were on the same side. They were both on the outside. Mark says they're both outside the house. But really, that's a picture for the fact that they are, by their unbelief, outside of God's kingdom. They are unbelievers. They didn't get Jesus' identity right. Who did? The filthy masses that were crowding into that tiny little house, so crowded that that they couldn't even eat a meal. Those are the ones who got it right. The ones who who seem to have nothing better to do in their lives than crowd into that little house and listen to Jesus talk. Jesus says, this is my family. You are my brothers and sisters and mother. Those who do the will of God and the will of God is that you would simply hear Jesus and receive the forgiveness He came to bring. And Jesus is talking about you too. He's calling you his family, his mother and brother and sister. Individually, each and every one of you. Because just by coming here to hear the words of Jesus, you are doing the will of God. And the world may call us crazy for doing it. And when you step back and think about it, it it is a little bit crazy what we do here, right? You wake up early every Sunday morning. You could be doing a million other things. You come here to sit in a room with people you kind of know, but not really. You maybe would never go out to eat with or invite over to your house some of the people we gather with here. You hear some guy in this funny-looking robe to call you a sinner to your face, and then he says that your sins are forgiven by virtue of his call and Christ's authority. We eat some bread that's really someone's body and some wine that's really someone's blood. You freely bring your offerings and give of your time without receiving any real tangible benefit from it. We come here to pray, praise, and give thanks to a God we cannot see for a gift of salvation that we can only apprehend by faith. We can't see or feel salvation either. Is it crazy? No, I don't think so. That's Christianity. Amen. 